are we alone? Is this evidence of extraterrestrial activity or something that's maybe already been here or was here forever and before us, which opens the question of do we really own this planet? The other answer is just as interesting, it might be depressing. The other answer is we are alone, at least here, and nothing has been here. That's interesting, but it still begs the question, what is it that everybody's seeing, right? So you still have to explain it. So no matter what the answer is here, the answer is interesting. Dr. Gary Nolan is the director, NHLBI Proteomics Center, and professor of microbiology and immunology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Nolan received his PhD from the Department of Genetics at Stanford at the Herzenberg Laboratory, and his BS in genetics from Cornell University. He was a postdoctorate fellow in the laboratory of Dr. David Baltimore at MIT and Rockefeller University. He is the author of over 120 peer-reviewed papers and holds numerous issued patents and was recently honored as one of the top 25 inventors at Stanford University. So, Gary, thanks for joining us today. Um, we've met before uh, a couple times, once at a Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies conference. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I think that was the only time, but it's it's a pleasure to, to see you again. Yeah, well, thanks to you guys for setting this up and inviting me. It's going to be a fun discussion. Awesome. Um, so let's kind of cut to the chase here. You know, you're a very well-respected scientist. You've been involved in the UAP topic and have been vocal about it in a way other people haven't. Um, just lately, we're now, you know, just to kind of set the stage, we're, we're about a month and a half away, or we've been waiting for a month and a half for this latest UAP report to come out. Uh, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2023 uh, there's a, a final version of that that is ready to be voted on, which has about 33 pages worth of UAP-related uh, whistleblower protections and um, accountability office, you know, research projects, and uh, going all the way back to 1945. Uh, 1947 was on the original version. Now we're looking at 1945 uh, to go back for that analysis. Um, at the same time, we also have major media publications such as New York Times and Wash, uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal um, communicating and expressing that, you know, the UAP bubble has popped and that this is all nonsense, uh, more or less. And that, that was really communicated, um, on the day that the original UAP report was due to come out. Uh, and all those, all the, all that reporting seemed to kind of poo-poo the idea that this report had anything substantial to say. Um, now those articles came and went, and now it's a month and a half later and the report's still not finished. Uh, what do you make of those articles and, and kind of the general communication that we're seeing from the mainstream media on this topic? Well, it certainly leaves the impression that the articles were planned. But what excites me about that so-called planning is it shows you, frankly, how disorganized they are. <laughs> because if they didn't even understand that the NDAA uh, or the, sorry, the UAP report was going to come out in a couple of months, it meant that they basically mistimed it. Mm -hmm. And so that, to me, tells me that whoever the opposition is is not to be feared as much as uh, some think that they should be. Hmm. Now, who do you think that opposition is? Do you think there is just a, a general uh, skeptical crowd inside that thinks that this is a waste of resources? Is that kind of the type of person that you think this would be, or the group? Well, I mean, it, without getting all conspiracy-minded, conspiracy mm -hmm. you know, there are, of course, those people who are uh, on the inside who, as you say, they don't want to see wasted resources. But also, you know, this is an existential change in how it is that humanity sees itself. And so whether or not you're religious or whether you're a-religious, 
uh, changing where you are in the hierarchy of things is an important change in your psychological structure. So there's always going to be a pushback on that mentally, but also, you know, also there's the crowd effect that happens. Individually, as I find, for instance, in, in the sciences, individually, I can talk to a scientist and they're all open on the idea and they want to know everything about it. Mm -hmm. But in the crowd, they become another person. Mm. And so I think there's a little bit of that kind of a psychology going on. And because people often need outside validation, not just on these ideas, but for themselves. And so if the more we start to see other individuals outside in the community at large who are saying this is okay to talk about, the further then those who are on the inside will feel comfortable coming out and doing things, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It does. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's pretty much what I've seen as we've been interviewing different pilots. Um, the more that they are sharing their experiences, the more they're learning from other pilots and other air crew that they're sharing the same experiences and they just weren't talking about it before. Uh, so yeah, I think that's, that's very astute point. Um, so, you know, I'm a pilot or I was, um, I'm not, uh, I don't have the, the educational pedigree that you have. Um, when we approach this topic as, a, as pilots, for us, it's very pragmatic. We're looking at this, uh, from an aviation safety perspective. Uh, and that's really how I got involved because we were almost hitting these things and we didn't know what to do and we're canceling training. Um, how did you get involved in this topic? Well, a couple of different angles. I mean, the first one was uh, working on that mummy that people thought was an alien. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that and I was intrigued and I said, well, okay, you say that, but okay, who's doing the science to prove it? Well, I can do the science. Mm -hmm. And so that was when I reached out to the people who had it and uh, got access to some material from it. We did the studies, we published it, we showed it wasn't, and that's fine. And I did something very similar. It wasn't uh, an alien. It, it wasn't an alien. Yeah. It was, it was un an unfortunate, probably uh, preterm birth uh, with a lot of genetic anomalies. Um, and you know, we, of course, brought in the world's experts in all of the various sub-disciplines that were required mm -hmm. to analyze the thing, everything from South American genetics, the specialist happened to be at Stanford, the specialist in uh, in um, genetic bone disorders, et cetera. Um, because that's what you need to do with these kinds of things. If you can do it and it's easy enough, you need to bring in and make a final statement about some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so for me, and this is, an, uh, this is the honest way that I was going about it, for me, the, the, the doing of that study, uh, the undertaking of that study, was because I really wanted to send a flag up as I, we were talking earlier, a smoke signal to the scientific community at large mm. to see what other scientists are able or willing to come forward now that there's somebody willing to be out there talking about this kind of thing openly. Mm -hmm. um, because, and part of what drove me were discussions I'd had with other scientists earlier on who told me that I was gonna ruin my career mm. uh, by getting involved in this at any level. And to be honest, that just got me angry. And in fact, if anything, it got me more determined that I should be doing something yeah. about this because they were telling me that something was clearly logical and well within the realm of scientific analysis and study. They were telling me not to do it, which to me just said they're more religious and cult-like than most, I think, scientists should be. I mean, to me, if, you're, if you've agreed to be a scientist, you've agreed to a certain set of rules about how you explore reality mm -hmm. or nature. And if you're breaking some of the basic tenets of those rules, then 
you need to be disciplined. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was part of this impetus was this is something that I should be doing or because I should, I don't like people telling me I shouldn't be doing something when I know it's right. Mm -hmm. And so that brought me to the attention of a number of other scientists who actually were there, who'd been doing this kind of work for decades, as it turns out. Uh, and, um, you know, I could, I, I felt the community growing and it really, but everything was going along, I think in a more subterranean manner until eventually, uh, uh Lou Elizondo reached out to me, uh, and, uh, with others said, this is what we're about to release. And, uh, I remember basically the day I was in Washington, DC, uh, we met, uh, in crystal city overlooking the Pentagon at a bar. And he showed me the video of what was supposed to be coming out, the gimbal and the go fast videos. Uh, and that to me was an energizing moment realizing that, okay, here it is. This is it. Uh, this is, you know, whether that is sufficient proof or not, the fact that we knew that it was going to be coming out of the New York times, I was ready for, uh, what was coming and excited about it. Mm-hmm. I realized that it wasn't going to be the end of the story. That was just the beginning of it. But for me, it was the first thing I sent around to the people, the scientists, friends of mine who'd said, you know, this is something you shouldn't be doing. I said, look at mm-hmm. this. And what's exciting now, now fast forward, what, four or five years later, uh, now there's so many of my scientific friends who the first thing they want to ask once we're dispensed with the usual uh, pleasantries about whatever science is they're doing, Gary, what's going on mm-hmm. about the UFO stuff? I really want to hear. Well, do they want to just hear or they want to do something about it? So, yes. So, um, Sean Parker, who funds uh, my lab, um, the Napster Facebook, Sean Parker, funds my lab through... Um, through his uh, Immunotherapy of Cancer Foundation, uh, he actually put down uh, a fair amount of money at one of the conferences that he ran for me to uh, have a uh, basically the, an evening uh, of talking about this matter. Flew in Lou Elizondo. We brought in Chris Mellon via Zoom. Uh, Lady Gaga was at the back, uh, um, uh, hidden, uh, and um, and I know he put a fair amount of money into this. Now, was there sufficient data? Most these were my scientific colleagues, and many of them came up to me afterwards and said, "Well, Gary, you didn't really show any data." And I said, "Well, the reason there was no data is because nobody else is helping." And so several of them said, "How can I help?" So that's what changes. You know, it's, it's you always do need somebody who has whatever the reputation is that is necessary. They can say, okay, well, if, and I've heard this many times, I wouldn't believe it if it weren't for you. Hmm. And so, you know, people say, oh, you're, you're wonderful, you're whatever. It's like, no, I'm, I'm not wonderful. I'm just telling you that if, you, if you've agreed to this set of rules, like I was talking about before, hmm. then, and you're not gonna follow them, then, I'm not going to think, I'm not going to listen to your criticisms. Mm. So it's a, that's a very interesting philosophy, I would say, or similar philosophy to some of the, the airline captains we've spoken to, right? Mm-hmm. They have accepted the responsibility for all those lives on the aircraft before yeah. they even stepped on the aircraft. They've viewed the weather. They've looked at, you know, solar activity for solar flares. I mean, everything you can imagine, health of the uh, the the passengers, right? If someone is, you know, has a potential heart attack on the plane, that could be a problem. Uh, and so it's very simple. You've agreed that you've accepted that responsibility, mm-hmm. uh, not just the pilots themselves, but the the carriers themselves, the companies right. themselves. 
And yet this is an issue that they have a hard time reporting. Mm-hmm. They uh, have received, some of the pilots I've interviewed have received uh, decease and resist letters. Um, and the, their companies are just frankly not supportive of that conversation. Um, and I see it being an extremely similar parallel to the, you know, the scientific methodology that you've agreed to. You've looked at, you've agreed to look at the data, and so when there is data available, you're doing science a disservice by not actually looking at it. Right. I mean, and one of the premises that I've pushed, and this is, you know, I engage on Twitter, and I just started on Reddit, is, you know, how do we teach the, let's say the. Uh, the lay public who's interested in this matter to talk about the matter in a scientific way. Because, I mean, let's, let's sort of take a couple of steps back. Um, how does a scientist believe what it is that they see? What, how, do we, how do we validate something? So if you're a so-called experiencer, you experience something. And as many people know, I experienced something when I was young. I saw a craft go right over my head. Um, so but I didn't know what it was at the time. There was no ufology uh, at the time. So for me, that was an experience. And it's in many ways, in conventional terms, it's an anecdote. But I wanna talk about the word anecdote a little bit in a, in a minute. Um, and so I don't need proof of anything to know that it's real. But if I want to convince my scientific colleagues then the agreement has to be that there's another language that's being used, okay. right? So that language is the language of science, is something that I can create data sets that can be handed to other people. They can either believe or not my conclusions or my assumptions, my speculations about what that data means. So what I've been trying to teach the, uh, the let's say the, the lay public is prove that the data is valid. You don't have to come to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. You don't have to believe it's the Pleiadians, you know, from Alpha Centauri or something, right? You just have to convince another scientist or another individual that the data is real. Once the data is real, you get to actually turn the tables. You now aren't responsible for coming up with the answer. Mm-hmm. You can now say, look, we're scientists. To the extent that you're interested in this data, you tell me what it is that you think it is. Help me speculate. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a, if, if I give you a speculation, I'm not looking for you to throw it on the ground and stomp on it. I'm looking for you to work with me to figure out what the angles are that best describe the data that we're observing. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I see that a lot of times people, they either don't want to look at the data and you really can't force them to really look at it. You kind of have to wait for them to be in a mental state where they say, okay, I think that there might be something here. I'm going to look at it. But at the end of the day, we, we need more data. So you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about how we could do that. Do you have any ideas about how we can expand uh, our understanding? And let's just maybe, let's pray, maybe break this down to two different ways. We can talk about maybe sensing and how we're going to understand where these are. Uh, and then maybe we can kind of talk about further understanding them on the material side, if that's possible. And I know yep. you have a little expert, well, more than a little expertise, but lots of expertise in most likely both of these. But um, what do we know as far as the sensing goes? We know that we can detect these, at least some of these objects. Um, we've done it uh, with our radars, um, varying powers of radar. And we've seen progression of the fidelity of the radar track files as mm-hmm. we increase that power. So we think that there is some type of relationship there. We know where to look. Um, we need to perhaps modify the tools and the sensors so that it's uh, specific for this task in some sense. Um, these all seem like pretty achievable 
uh, problems here. Mm -hmm. What's what's the holdup? Well, I think the holdup, frankly, is that people are waiting for daddy to give them the data. Mm. And daddy, in this case, is the uh, is the government. Mm -hmm. And the government has, we know, the best sensors. But, you know, we also know that as technology progresses, a lot of those sensor systems actually eventually become publicly available. Mm -hmm. They might be in some way uh, dumbed down and not as sensitive as what's available. There are accessible systems. So the Galileo project that I'm uh, a part of, that Avi Loeb at Harvard started, uh, he has he's setting up a sensor system. It's expensive. Um, he's using, uh, I would say, more, uh, let's say, uh, an astrophysicist's toolkit to look at the skies. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are, of course, many other toolkits that could be brought to bear. Uh, and so, you know, the, I think that to me, the exciting part is, well, let's collect the data on what this phenomena is. Because once you see something moving in a non-conventional manner, it begs the question, how did it do it? I'm, I'm less interested who, in who might be behind them <laughs> than what it is that they're doing. Because what it is that they're doing breaks our current understanding of if they're real. I mean, I, I'm going to always be, I'm going to remain a skeptic to the, at least for my scientific colleagues to say, because they don't necessarily believe what it is that I think it is. Uh, so can we collect enough data that tells us about what it is and how it is that they're moving? And then can we look at the equations of physics mm -hmm. that tell us how it is that we might do something similar? Because if, if they are doing these things that are unconventional or frankly impossible, as you know as a pilot, then uh, somebody has access to either levels of power or levels of physics understanding that we don't appreciate. I see a huge commercial gold mine in that. Mm. And so, I mean, I'll just jump. Why do I think that way? My whole career has been creating technologies that I think of as inevitable. Mm. I look at something and I say, ah, we need this kind of data. Nobody else has it because if we have that kind of data, we can jump here. And so then I spend the time to invent that technology. Every time that I sit in a lecture, the first thing that comes to mind when I'm watching stuff is, okay, how can, I, how can they use that? What's the best, how, how can we use this for patient benefit? Mm. Um, so with that same mindset, I look at all of the things that are going on right now in the UAP arena and say, okay, how can we do that? What's the, what are the exotic technologies that people are already beginning to develop that might be part of the solution to what it is that those things are doing? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's like you know, those, those Sims-like games where you build structure, you build something that builds something that builds something. Uh, you know, are we gonna be flying around in anti-gravity craft next year? No. But we'll, anything along the path towards that is an extraordinary advance. Even just small you know, improvements in efficiency right. or weight or right. any of those things. Yeah, absolutely. It's an evolutionary process. I mean, you, you, know, you, you have to have a goal, though. Evolution doesn't think, but an evolutionary process can be brought to bear on all of this. Because what you need to do is you need to have what I've called a virtuous feedback cycle. Where let's say that we we let's say we had a piece of material from a craft mm -hmm. from these alleged crash retrievals, you know the, the the word on the street is from within that uh, nobody understands how these things operate. They don't know where the battery is. 
They don't know where the engine is. Uh, they don't know. So uh, somehow they are embedded in the structure of the craft or maybe they're beaming the power from somewhere else. And I'm just making all of this stuff up as mm -hmm. I go along. So for the people out there who want to say that I'm claiming all of this, I'm not. Taking notes. Um, is, so, so, okay, so their, their craft are made of things apparently that are either extracting energy or by themselves are the engine. Okay. So those are probably made right down at the atomic level. There's some material aspect of these things we could imagine that we don't know about, we don't understand. Just gaining that information will say, okay, there's something here. Why did they put this atom next to that atom next to that atom? Mm -hmm. Now, it might not, that's not the solution, but seeing it, first of all, if it's something that we can't make, right, or we have not ever made, well, that's about as close to smoking gun evidence you're going to get. But again, I'm not interested in saying who made it. I'm interested in saying or asking the question, what does it do? Mm -hmm. Because the understanding that will come from that, once something like that is available, uh, which is not publicly available yet, uh, then you can bring in the kinds of material scientists to say to sit around a table and play what if. Because that's what scientists are really good at. And frankly, I think that one of the problems, you know, to the extent that any of the stories about crash retrievals are true, where they say that they can't understand it, is because they haven't done the sort of open science that can be done. Now, open science doesn't mean it needs to be talked about, you know, publicly in academia, but bringing in academics mm -hmm. is important. So one of the, so I wrote a, a white paper to one of the intelligence committees uh, in the run-up to the NDAA. Uh, and one of the things that I put in that was you need to bring in academics, you need to get them uh, clearances. And Is that a publicly available paper? What's that? Is that publicly uh, available? I have to ask. Um, but uh, the, uh, the long and the short of it was, guess what's in the language? Mm -hmm. There's language, at least I didn't check the last one, but it was in the language that said we will start to bring in academic scientists. And it's, it's not because academic scientists are better. It's not like they're, you know, they're, there's lots of fantastic scientists in the government and the military. It's because they have a mindset of asking questions that have uh, not been answered. They have an exploratory way of doing things because there's, there's two kinds of science that are generally done. One is called basic research and the other is translational. If you have only a translational mindset, if you look at something and you can't figure out what its translatability is mm -hmm. to utility, then you might just walk away. Yeah. As opposed to, at least the time in which I grew up, the basic science is let's just collect information because we don't know what the heck anything is. And this was like the what happened for the last two centuries. But suddenly you have this extraordinary resource and library of facts and factoids that with better understanding now with a translational eye, you can go in and say, I can put this together with this and this. So the tinkerer, mm -hmm. you know, comes along and says, ah, this is the kind of things that I can do with it. So that's, I think, that's part of where, I mean, we're at the, you know, even if, again, these alleged things are, are real, we're at the beginning of collecting the basic information and then saying, how can we use this? And you would think that exists better under the material science umbrella. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, so let's look at the kinds of instruments that are out there right now. They're crude. I mean, really are. I mean, you know, the, the best mass spectrometers uh, that tell you what things are made of 
for instance, what atoms and isotopes are there. I don't mean radioactive isotopes. I mean just variations of flavors of iron and flavors of different, um, different elements. Uh, understanding what is there is not just saying there's this percentage of iron and there's this percentage of that. It's knowing the exact structure of where those atoms are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of my friends and colleagues, who's actually the guy who helped found the Galileo project, is Frank Lockean. So Frank uh, owns uh, the CEO of Bruker. Bruker is a huge mass spectrometry company. Everybody in my field knows this. So guess what he's interested in? He happens to be interested in the UAP issue. Uh, he's, he's funded that. And uh, so, but even he realizes that the technology is insufficient. The granularity that we require to understand these things is uh, not there. Now- Are we close? Yes, we're very, I think we're very close. Yeah, there's, there's several ways that I'm pursuing that uh, will, will get us there. Um, but I think the way to, to look at it is that even if all of the suppositions about UAP are some kind of illusion or mistake, developing the technologies in expectation of understanding, we can turn those same tools towards simply, you know, conventional yeah. materials. Because as I've said, you know, to friends of mine, we don't even understand the structure of glass. Mm. We don't even understand, frankly, the structure of water and ice. I mean, we can, make, we can model it, but we don't know it. And why would you want to know that? Because if, and you were involved in a sort of a generative AI uh, approach for materials, is there's this whole thing called structure function. Um, you can make a structure of something and you determine its function. And if the structure works and, and in a way that you want, then that's fine. But usually evolution, you vary the structure a little bit and then you say, did the function change? Is it better or worse? Um, but the feedback cycle is best, let's say, enabled and fed by an exact understanding of what that structure is, not a modeled understanding that you did in silico. Mm -hmm. And so this is the kind of thing that uh, it, better imaging approaches of imaging of materials in situ will vastly improve our uh, larger industrial capabilities and then should somebody say, oh, well, that's a great capability. Uh, I have this thing in a vault that's been there for 40 years. Maybe I should bring it out mm. uh, because maybe you can help me with it. Yeah, so this this type of technology be, would be, it, now are we, is, is this like a kind of pre-quantum level? We're not getting down to the area where mm. quantum effects take place? No, it's, um, I mean, that, that of course would be the next level. Uh, this is just knowing where the atoms are in 3D space at the, at the sub-angstrom level. Uh, because down at that level, you can start to make best guesses as to the bond structure mm -hmm. of the objects. Uh, but th this gets into a, a slightly different area, right? And that's, um, so Jacques Vallée, a friend of mine, uh, brought me any of a number of materials that uh, were, had a very decent history, witnesses uh, and chain of evidence um, involved with them. And one of the materials he brought was the so-called and very well-known Ubatuba event. And so I went uh, 
with Jacques over to an instrument on Stanford's campus in the engineering quad. Uh, it's called a secondary ion mass spec. It's called the nanosims made by Kamika. Um, and uh, we put uh, basically on something that looked like this. Uh, this would be the disk where you have several samples on that disk. And so he had two versions of this material, this metallic material that had supposedly come from an, a, an explosion of a craft. Uh, and he had two different samples that had two different chains of evidence. They both looked identical as far as I could tell. Um, and then we did the, uh, the secondary ion mass spec of it. We, but they were done in the same instrument. You put them into this vacuum chamber. Somebody shoots a beam of, you shoot a beam of ions at them. Those are the primary ions. They basically, like a sandblaster, lift off secondary ions. And then they go into uh, something which measures the weight of them. So what was the, the long and the short of that? Was that one of the samples, and it was mostly, it was made of magnesium and a few other things. The magnesium ratios of the isotopes were normal. Right, so there's magnesium 23, 24, and 25, or it's 24, 25, 26, I don't re quite remember. Um, but, and they're supposed to be 90%, 11%, 9%. That's what you would find pretty much anywhere on Earth. Okay. Those would be the percentages. It was like, okay, that's normal. Not, I mean, it doesn't mean it didn't come from a craft, it just means it's normal. Something that you would find so, here. Something you would find here. Mm -hmm. The other one was like way off. I mean, just so far off baseline as it wasn't even like an error of measurement. And the reason, one of the, one of the reasons I can, I feel comfortable saying that is we, we did multiple runs on that same sample and it was all done in the same instrument at the same time. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like I came back the next day and somebody had, you know, mis, sure. you know, turned a dial the wrong way or anything. And, and so that got me thinking, I mean, it doesn't prove it's extraterrestrial, but it proves that somebody engineered the ratios for a reason or there was an industrial process that created that ratio. So that begs, a, I mean, and at the time that this thing was found, this was decades ago, that would have been an expensive proposition to make that. So why would you blow it up over a beach, you know, in Brazil? So that's the first question is why, you know, how, how expensive is it? Could you do it? The second question is why would you change the ratios? Because we don't use isotopes for, frankly, anything other than blowing stuff up or radioactive tracers in bodies or as an anti-cancer, mm -hmm. right? So we have a very limited understanding of what's the difference between iron 54 and iron 55. So one of the differences is something that you alluded to earlier, the quantum states of what goes on inside of the nucleus, uh, and that there are very subtle but interesting differences that go down that go on down to that level that actually humans use. We actually use in nuclear magnetic resonance when you go for an NMR, mm -hmm. uh, they're actually using isotopes that have a magnetic subtlety that can be detected in a magnetic field that's different than the other isotopes of that same element. So on that track, chemists have started to understand now that I can take, I can take an isotope of one molecule, of one element and put it in a structure of a molecule and it actually has a slightly different function than the other one. It's, it's subtle. Mm -hmm. It's like the difference between, you know, red and red orange, but it is enough of a difference that it actually becomes valuable even in, say, pharmaceuticals. Mm. And one of the interesting ones is, so, lithium. 
So lithium uh, is uh, uh, used in psychiatry for bipolar disorder, amongst a few other things. I know that because my aunt actually had bipolar. Um, and so there's lithium four and five or five and six. I'm gonna get in trouble for not knowing my elemental table. Um, and so somebody did a study once where they, I don't know why they necessarily did it, where they used one of the lithium isotopes versus the other on, um, on uh, nursing rats with mm -hmm. pups. And the normal one, nothing happened, the normal lithium, but when they took lithium uh, of one of the isotopes versus the other, one of the isotopes, the rats, ignored the pups. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And the other one, it overweaned really? the pups. That's fascinating because that means that the human body is sort of a sensor capable of detecting the difference between those two isotopes and has somehow affected the brain chemistry mm -hmm. differently. Okay, so there's, there's another example is, uh, is um, in quantum computers and, and creating quantum holes. Quantum holes? Well, you know, I mean, holes in, in, uh, in material where you can do uh, entanglement. Okay. Right, and so silicon is one of them. It turns out that one of the silicon isolates allows for the quantum state to be maintained longer than another. Hmm. Right, so so you, there you, is you, some functionality. We yeah. just really haven't got to that. We haven't gotten to that level of understanding of why you would do it. Mm -hmm. but, you, but again, what I'm saying is it's inevitable. Yeah inevitably we will reach a level of understanding where doing something like this and using the subtleties of nature uh, is going to be a positive thing. I mean, I often put it this way. Humans currently paint the world in 85 elements. We could be painting, and maybe somebody else is already painting the world in the 253 or so stable isotopes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've already opened that up. Yeah, they're in technicolor, we're still black and white. So we can tell essentially with the technology we have now and that, and we'll talk a little bit more about it, but you're creating new technology that will give a, a better window into, into that regime. Uh, and maybe we can't necessarily say with certainty on every material that it's not from here, but they are presenting extremely unique, um, you know, ratios and makeup that make it very interesting if, if nothing else. Yeah, well, I mean, just let's just ask the question about the Ubatuba event. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why would you do it? And uh, why would you, is it, is it part of some refuse uh, that the craft doesn't use? Is it the exhaust mm -hmm. from the craft? Um, there's another set of cases that are really interesting. There's actually multiple cases of this where a craft is seen, and, the, and I actually published a peer-reviewed paper on this one. Uh, it's actually the first ever peer-reviewed paper in a major journal uh, on so-called UFO materials. And it was the, uh, the so-called Council Bluffs case, circa 1976. Um, craft is seen over Council Bluffs, Iowa. Oh, Iowa, yeah. And, uh, and uh, the scene, it's, it's basically seen in the distance from the city by multiple individuals. Mm. And then lights flashing and the, kind of the usual. Mm. Uh, and then something seems to drop from the craft. And so several cars converge on the site, including the police. Uh, and so on the ground is a pool of liquid metal, like 35 or so pounds. It, the, I have the original pictures that the, that the uh, police took. This is all through Jacques Vallée. Uh, and so I analyzed those materials, not to prove that it was 
anything and not to make a conclusion, but to basically get the data out there, right? To create the data. Now, what do we find anything interesting? We didn't find any strange ratios, but what was interesting about that, and we could prove at least extrapolate that it wasn't, you know, somebody was flying over in a helicopter and, and dropped, you know, mm -hmm. a molten metal because the cost to doing that would be too much. Um, and a lot of other reasons why. But what was interesting about the material was, depending on where you looked in the material, the elemental ratios were different. You know, it was iron, nickel, a few other things in there, silicon. Um, okay, it's, it's, it's not homogeneous. It's kind of like you melt uh, vanilla and chocolate ice cream, you only partly swirl it. Mm -hmm. You didn't put it in the blender, mm -hmm. right? So why would that, so what industrial process would create this? And I've got a, a similar sample from Australia. There's another one in Fresno that if the guy who, did, who offered it is mad at me for not coming and picking it up, it's just because I haven't had the time. <laughs> With the same story. He found it in his driveway. They saw it, and then they, he found this metal in his driveway. Liquid, a liquid pool? Liquid pool. Yeah, well, he wow. found, he, found the, 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 um, he saw the, the object, and then the next day, they found this metal in, in the asphalt of their, wow. of their driveway. So one of the things that I want to be able to do is collect a number of these events uh, to see, well, what are the similarities? You know, are the same elements there? And, and why is it that they're dropping these metals? Mm -hmm. Again, is it part of the exhaust? Is it, is it something went unstable and they needed, to, they needed to get rid of it? I don't know. I have no idea what it is. Um, but again, creating that data and getting it out there, and then giving people, and this is important as part of what you were saying before, giving people the permission to study it and, and creating an atmosphere where it's okay to talk about this mm -hmm. is what's gonna bring it forward. I can't do everything just gonna that, say that is being brought. I mean, I, I'm, being, I'm being offered dozens of opportunities, very few of which I can follow up on, nor will I follow up on, until I have a consolidated pipeline of analysis that will allow me to put all of them through in a standardized way so that I could eventually publish a paper that says, well, here again is the data, but here is now the comparison group of other things that were like this. And here are, you know, in science we call them controls. Here are human materials analyzed in the same way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's expensive. Yeah, you know, I've personally put, you know, at this point now, probably about $100,000 of my own money and time uh, to do this kind of analysis. Uh, and at, I, I use Stanford equipment, and Stanford's perfectly fine with that. I'm not breaking any rules, uh, as long as I pay for it, pay for the time. Um, because I want to get that data out there, mm -hmm. right? And, I, and, and once you've done that, then you can point other people, so here's how you do it. Because it's the peer review process that lets you talk to another scientist and say this has been vetted, right? You can't do it by Twitter. You can't do it in a press release. Mm -hmm. You can't do a one-off study because it has no correlation to any prior knowledge. So how do we, how do we interface with the academic institution and the scientists like yourself that don't, that don't have, you know, this, this fits on the cracks, right? This doesn't mm -hmm. fit seamlessly into, you know, um, 
anyone's camp right now in the academic world, um, how do we how do we open the door for them? How do we support that ecosystem? Well, part of it is is well, it's money. I mean, I've said this before um, that you know scientists will follow the money. I mean, they can't they these the instruments are expensive to do. The, the instruments exist. You don't need to buy all of the instruments to begin the study. Mm-hmm. You, they, you know, uh, you can rent access on them in, I mean, in Silicon Valley, there are multiple companies that provide these kinds of services to the chip industry because the chip industry wants to do exactly what I was just talking about. They want to understand what went right and what went wrong in the things that they make. So those facilities are all available. You just rent time on them. Uh, and so, you, you need that kind of money. So one of the things that I'm doing uh, is uh, rather than wait for the government to give me the money, I'm setting up an uh, organization that is bringing in charitable funds. And hopefully by next year, we'll have the ability to talk much more about it. But with those charitable funds, we'll be able to do at least two things. We'll be able to write policy papers to the government as to why they should support this kind of research. Because then what you're doing is you're giving the people on, on the inside if you've got sort of like a, a, uh, a think tank on the outside who's writing all of the reasons and giving them the crib notes that yeah. they need to make the arguments to their upper class and to make the arguments to, the, to either the generals or the politicians. Um, so you, you need to provide that. So where do you get that? You, you source the writing from academics and if you pay an academic $10,000 to write such a thing, they'll probably jump at it, you know, especially, you know, I, I mean, most academics aren't rich. Most academics don't go out and start companies. So that's at one level. But with, again, sufficient resources, you get to do something else. Now you get to give money to postdoctoral fellows or to laboratories where you can say, I want this studied. You know, you, you don't have to find that person. You just need to put out the fact that you have the money and then you hopefully get enough credible applications, grant applications for it. You have then a team of scientists vet the applications. You give them the money and you let them go. They publish a paper. That further opens the aperture. You do this in enough places, and suddenly it's a field. Now it's a credible field. Right? You, you don't start, I don't think, at least now, you don't start your own journal. Because your own journal can then be ridiculed by the mainstream journals. Mm, it's isolated. It's isolated. You, you write the papers, like I wrote this Council Bluffs paper. I didn't make any conclusions. I just said, here's what happened, here's, we happened, and then we talked to the editor. We said, would you be interested in this? He says, well, as long as you don't go all UFO on it, yeah, we'll look at it. They sent it out to reviewers. The reviewer said, this is really cool. Um, we'll do it. So, so you have to find you know, you're not going to get it into science or nature on day one, right? But you'll get it into the mid-level journals that then creates a track record uh, on that is then usable by other scientists because then they can cite it. Mm-hmm. Because science is built on a foundation of knowledge that you can basically cite prior knowledge and how your new finding relates to the prior thing. And that's that whole correlation map that I was talking about before. Mm-hmm. If you create a piece of data out in the middle of nowhere, it might as well be in Alpha Centauri or in the Andromeda Galaxy because it doesn't have any relationship to the prior knowledge. It sounds pretty achievable. I mean, this yeah. all sounds like it's it's a pretty achievable process here to, to get academia 
looking into this. It doesn't sound like there's any major. It's issues. not. It's not hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, I'd love hundreds of millions of dollars, but it's not hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a few. It's a few millions to get going, and then a few tens of millions once the. But then again, that's that virtuous cycle. Mm -hmm. Once you show credibility, and once some opportunity is realized, and I mean by that kind of a, a sort of a, a translational thing. Mm -hmm. Like in Silicon Valley, the first idea out the gate to try to get funded is very rarely the one that ever gets funded. Mm -hmm. It's the follow-ons and the copycats mm -hmm. that then grow the field. And so that really is what I'm, what I'm aiming for. And I've said this publicly. I said, I don't need to be the one who does it. I don't need to be the hero. I don't need all the glory. I just want to create a space wherein others can come in and do that because mm -hmm. it's inevitable. Have you identified any of those people that might be oh, yeah. willing to have that conversation? And can you share? I mean, I, I won't, I haven't asked them permission to talk sure. about their stuff, but um, yeah, there's, there's quite a few. And it's more, is this more mainstream? Are there new names? Do we see this growing, expanding, or is it kind of the same it's, conversation with the same people with, you know? No, I mean the same people. I mean, there's lots of the, the same people, but I've seen, the kinds of data and approaches that they're doing, and it's not necessarily how I would approach it. I'm not saying it's wrong. I don't want to be some sort of elite, you know, uh, university snob about it. Um, I'm just saying that we, you, you, you don't necessarily want the older folks doing it. You want to trigger the minds of the younger folks doing it. So, for instance, sitting in my inbox are offers from graduate students and postdocs and all over the place, everywhere from Princeton, Harvard, MIT, et cetera. They're saying, hey, how can I help? Because those are the minds that you want, because they're the ones who will make an eventual career out of it, mm -hmm. right? I've already got a career. This is my, you know, the cherry on top, as far as I'm concerned, approach to things. So, I mean, it's, it, it's not gonna happen tomorrow, but I think it's, it's basically creating the fertile ground that others can be able to step into. That's what I hope to do with all of this. I see, create a place where you can support it in a kind of sustained manner and mm -hmm. keep the conversation going. Oh, very good. So I know you've been just recently been working with a team of very respectable scientists. Uh, it was announced today, although this will air in the future and it'll be about mm -hmm. a month old or so, mm -hmm. but would you mind talking a little bit about Copernicus? Right, so Copernicus is, um, a space development corporation. I don't, by the way, just to be clear, I don't speak for them. I don't have permission to speak for their corporate, Understood. you know, uh, objectives, etc. But um, I am on the scientific advisory board uh, of the company, and it's something started and founded um, by Avi Loeb, Frank Lockean, and a group of other scientists, very respectable uh, astrophysicists and physicists from Harvard. And interestingly, a good friend of mine, George Church, an uh, extraordinarily well-known uh, uh, genomics expert. Um, and so what is the purpose of Copernicus? It's uh, actually to upend the space exploration uh, um, paradigm. Right now, we spend billions of dollars sending a robot, and I love the stuff that's coming from the Viking or wherever else, mm -hmm. spend billions of dollars, and oh my God, we hope it doesn't crash. <laughs> right Only because one. you know and a, a couple have the, the russians seem to have no good luck going to mars um for instance they've had a number of their craft crash uh on the way 
And uh, so, okay, what's the reverse? Well, how about making much smaller objects, but making them at scale, mm. making tens of thousands of them and sending them out around just our own solar system even, uh, and uh, small enough so that they can collect data, let's say beam it back to a local uh, um, transit point, and then that transit point then has the power to beam it back to Earth. Mm -hmm. Now you have hundreds, thousands of eyes scattered around the solar system. Now, Avi's interest has been the Umauma comet, on a comet, asteroid, or uh, object that came through the solar system mm -hmm. that he had reason to believe might not have been a natural phenomenon. Uh, and so I think Avi, in a, in a similar way, is propelled or was propelled by the same thing that propelled me. He had an idea. Somebody told him it was ridiculous. <laughs> and he said, all right, I'm going to show you. Mm -hmm. And so rather than, I mean, obviously we can't go out to that object. He's going to, he said, well, look, if somebody else has been here, you know, and they've, if they have been here, is they've been here probably for millions of years or they passed through millions of years ago. We can't expect that they're contemporaneous with us necessarily. Mm -hmm. They've probably left residue of that. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason for going out and looking in our local solar system. You can't, you can't go out one at a time and just look here and look there. You want to basically try to do everything all at once. But there's a, there's a secondary mission of this, which is the search for life, right? That if we're going to do this, we might be able to send out, again, hundreds or thousands of these things to go explore the atmosphere of Venus, explore Europa, you know, drop dozens of these things uh, on the ice on Europa, and then see if you can look with a, just a standard microscope, nothing mm. super fancy. But... You know, there's, there's yet another objective here, and that is to make things that can build themselves. Okay. Right? Things that can use local materials, make more copies of themselves, and uh, then, or, or at the very least, set up uh, a forward camp where other things can come in and do the next level of building. I think Professor Hansen would like to have a word with you about von Neumann probes and yeah. our ability to get grabby within the, the universe. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, you know, that's, you know it, I think it's bigger than maybe, I think you guys are necessarily communicating at this point. I mean, this is really uh, a pathway for us to explore, you know, potentially the whole galaxy over a number yep. of years, uh, decades, or not decades. <laughs> centuries. Uh, yeah, centuries, eons. excuse me, millions of years, but... Um, but in the in the in the in the grand scheme of of the universe, it's like a decade. It's a very quick amount right. of time here. It's it's the start of a uh, start of the end of a colonization process, right. essentially theoretically. Right. Uh, so you know, I was looking at the people that were on it, and his credible uh, list of names on there. Uh, there seemed to be some people with some biological uh, specialties. So could you maybe right. uh, describe or talk about the type of technology that? you would utilize here, maybe it would be a slightly different than your traditional spacecraft. Right, well, I mean, the, the biological component would uh, potentially be, and this would be more of the expertise of, of George Church, and again, I'm not speaking for George, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm uh, imagining some of the things I know that could be, that could be done here, um, is that, you know, you can make, or even use, you don't even make the life, you can, George is a specialist in synthetic life, or the synth what's called synthetic biology. Um, you can use current bacteria even to help you mine asteroids. Mm -hmm. 
right? You'd have to, of course, set create a, a local ecosystem. You'd have to get the temperatures right, et cetera. But imagine if you could begin to mine out the materials, not by having a machine, but by providing enough water and uh, bacteria, they use the local substrate to basically make stuff, break it down to its component parts and as feedstock to build more copies of themselves. Mm -hmm. Just a big sludge almost that's yeah. processing. Yeah, I mean, it. this goes into the whole gray goo area <laughs> and all of that. I don't think we're at the gray goo stage. We're not at the, sure. uh, uh, we're not at the nanobot stage uh, or anywhere close to that. Um, but so I think that, so it, it, it'll be a mixture if we can, I mean, look, bacteria have been doing this for literally billions of years. So why don't we use the best miners in our solar system for this? The best miners on our solar system are not gophers. They're actually bacteria. Really? Right? I mean, they do this stuff incredibly. They do chemical feats that are we're, chemists are still trying to understand mm -hmm. and replicate. Mm -hmm. So that's you know, really one of the reasons why a person like George is brought on board. But, I mean, it's sort of an interesting – I didn't bring George on – it's sort of an interesting circling back to some something that uh, happened with me and, and, and George probably about five or six years ago. He had a conference on what he called the genetics of space. Hmm. Okay, and, and he brought in basically a lot of relatively conventional um, but forward-thinking scientists, uh, including one of the, um, the uh, astronauts who had his brother go up at the same time. We had a planetary science in there. And I had had a conversation with him a few months before the conference about my UFO stuff. He said, well, Gary, what's going on? And, he got, and I told him some of the stories uh, about, um, well, about the patients, the, the, the patients who had been harmed, uh, the whole Havana syndrome and the other, some of the other pilots who were non-Havana. He said, well, why don't you come and talk about your analysis at my seminar? And I thought, whoa, whoa, this is going to be a talk at Harvard Medical School uh, on a subject area that I haven't given a talk on ever before. Um, I said, are you sure? I said, I'll do it. And I did, and I gave the talk. And there was this sort of stunned silence from the audience. And then the questions started. Uh, and they were good questions. Yeah. Um, and so I... And so, you know who offered at the time then, who, who said, Gary, if you need help on these materials, George. Yeah. So I plant, so I'm not saying that I planted a seed that he might not have already been considering, but I mean, and George is a towering figure in the field. Uh, so you, you have a person like that now sitting on an advisory board of a space exploration that's at one level looking at translational but at the same level, we're doing the kind of basic science to collect the data. And as a side benefit, if somebody else shows up while we're doing this or we see evidence of somebody else has been there, mm -hmm. we're collecting the data. Yeah. So it sort of has, a, has, a, has three simultaneous, and plus it's cheaper. It, and we're not going to be building our own, our own. I mean, we said this in the, in the uh, they said it in the press release. We're not building our own launch capabilities. Mm -hmm. We're using other, the other launch capabilities that other people are generating yeah. and just hitching, paying to hitch the ride. Certainly. Yeah, I think that's how it'll go. 
Well, what about, um, so that's two. Do you, do you feel that uh, the other members of the group have that kind of same general feeling towards the UAP topic or has that not been approached yet? It hasn't been. I mean, I haven't, we haven't had the, the, uh, the, the, um, scientific advisory board, but you know, Frank Lockean is one of the, you basically provided uh, some of the funding for this. Um, you know, I don't think anybody who knows Avi is unaware of his interest in this area. Um, and I think even Avi's interest, or at least explicit uh, being open-minded about current UAPs as opposed to you know, centuries old things that happen to wander through the, the solar system is expanding. They're aware of this and they're aware of the controversy around Uma Uma. They're all in. I mean, these are like famous astrophysicists and physicists at Harvard. I'm almost, I'm almost scared to show up <laughs> because it's, it's not, my, not my area. But remarkably, you know, uh, Stephen Wolfram mm -hmm. is on the board. Mathematica. Mathematica, right? And interestingly, um, Wolfram's, uh, I'm pretty sure this is right, that Wolfram's uh, Mathematica was used to create the language in the movie Arrival. Oh really? Yeah, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, they I think they generated the the structures with um, some algorithms from Mathematica. I think so. I hope that's right. That's very cool. So you know, we talk about getting data. We talk about bringing scientists on. Is there a, like a path to do the thing that you said we can't do now, which is to start drawing conclusions in any way? I mean, you get to draw conclusions when you have something that wasn't made here before. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's when I'll feel comfortable. I mean, I, I will go to the major journal. If, if I have something where I have the atomic structure that is not anything that can be accomplished here, and it's clearly an engineered product, uh, and it has a baseline of provenance to it, uh, I will find a way to write a paper around it. I, I, I won't necessarily need to say that, it, that I know who made it, but I can write the paper in a way that says humans didn't make it, right? And so there's, I mean, I've had, I have like over, I don't know, 320 papers published uh, in my career. And there's a finessing to how you use the language to write something that you can walk right up to the line of saying something without saying it. You know, and, 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 and this is actually one of the things that goes on a lot and the problem I have sometimes communicating ideas to the public. You know, I'll use the word suggest or maybe mm -hmm. or whatever. And then, the, and then the next thing that comes out, Gary said this yeah. is true. Yeah. No, I didn't. The, I, I caveated the hell out of it. Um, so, but I can talk to another scientist and it's almost like body language. Uh, I can talk to other scientists and use that those words, and they understand what I'm saying yeah. and how far I'm going, and they understand that I'm implying that this is probably true, and or that it is enough of a belief structure that I can now do the next experiment mm -hmm. based on that partial understanding. Mm -hmm. So that's how a paper will be written around this. That's what I did with the Council Bluffs paper, um, and and it's it's wordsmithed to hell. It really, these things are, the better to, papers, yeah. you have to. Otherwise, the reviewer will call you out. Should we believe pilots when they see something in the sky? I mean, why not? I mean, uh, you know, the, it doesn't paint them as an experiencer. They're basically providing a story. And in, in that sense, I, I would think of this in a clinical sense, that story is an anecdote. 
right now, an, an anecdote in public parlance often means not just even unverified, it almost means you know, people use it as a way to dismiss something. Mm. Um, whereas in scientific parlance, the language of science is an anecdote, a clinical anecdote, is the first, let's say, observation of some unusual uh, clinical syndrome or a, a malady. So instead of like that, so what happens in science, and in a sense what's been happening with the pilots, are they're seeing something which appears to be a low probability event or may not even be potentially a real event, but it's an, it's an anecdote. It's a story about something that doesn't necessarily have the data mm. to support it, but that would be a basis for which to gather more data so that you can verify right. it. Well, I think the other way, so you know, we talked earlier about how anecdotes are, are let's say, one-off stories, whereas the scientists need something verifiable. How many anecdotes do you need until the pattern is obvious? Yeah. Right, so what, frankly, hasn't been done, I've been thinking about recently, is what kind of statistical analysis could you do on the anecdotes hmm. uh, in a way that basically turned them into a science. I see. Uh, and how many of such stories, what are the similarities to the stories, what are the commonalities, what's the patterns? Now, it isn't as if ufologists haven't been doing this before, mm -hmm. previously, but they've been not published in the right kinds of journals. I see. They haven't been given the credibility that is necessary. And so I think now, and especially with pilots, Right, and um, whether it's military or commercial, I mean the the, the military, the one that you obviously are, are in, involved with or were involved with, is it lent an air of credibility because here we have people who are entrusted with money, reputation, security weapons. of the U.S. <laughs> yeah, weapon systems, yeah. expensive pieces of equipment. Um, so uh, so there's a there's a level of credibility there. And then as you and I have talked about as well, with the commercial pilots, they have responsibility for the plane, the contents, the individuals, the lives, et cetera. And so um, they're, they're not just, and I'm not dismissing the truckers who keep our nation running. They're not a trucker uh, on, you know, on Highway 66 uh, in the middle of the night who saw something in the sky. Truckers right. don't have radars. They don't have radars. They don't have all the, yes, that's a good point. Um, they don't have all the secondary verification systems that are coming along with the stories of the pilots, commercial or military. Mm -hmm. So at, at, at what point do you ignore the evidence and uh, or stop ignoring the evidence and say, okay, let's look into it? And I think, you know, for instance, the stuff that you're doing with AIAA is a perfect example of that. And I'm going to spell that out because a lot of people don't know what that is, but the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. So, I mean, the reason why I think that that's important is because here you have a, uh, a professional group of people who are engineers and, uh, and scientifically inclined. I mean, you, you might not think of them as your everyday scientists, and yet they still have had the same kind of training that, you know, frankly, you could give them a PhD for if you wanted to mm -hmm. do so. Right, so uh, here you have the, the kinds of training uh, and expectations, and, and guess what? A lot of them see things, and those who haven't seen things, like I have with other scientists, they trust the people who are telling them what they've seen. Mm. Uh, and so- And that seems uh, to be a change, right? That's a huge change, yeah, I agree. Why do you think that happened? 
Well, I mean, I think because it's becoming more open, frankly, the things that you've been doing and setting it up, I mean, you obviously have amazing uh, uh, abilities to, com to convince people to do things. You got me <laughs> to fly down here today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I think that what's changing is that, again, it's this, it's this uh, per there's a permission structure being created. And that permission structure is allowing people, they might not, they don't need to say, I believe in it. Mm -hmm. They need to, they, all they are now able to do is say, okay, this is interesting. And gee, uh, somebody's raising the point that these things are being seen and maybe that they're a flight risk. They don't have to, you know, go in front of the, of the planes to be a, fl a flight risk. Yeah. They only need to distract the pilot sufficiently so that they make a mistake. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you're flying, and you know this as well better than I do, if you're flying and you're seeing something and you're talking to the radar operator down at the, at, the, um, at the airport and they're telling you you're not seeing something, you then begin to question your own judgment. And if you're questioning your judgment, are you going to land the plane right? Are you going to make the right decisions in the right period of time? Probably not. So at very least, that's a kind of commercial uh, aviation risk. Mm -hmm. Now, if we can explain those things as non-alien, non-extraterrestrial, and some sort of natural phenomena, great. Then we can avert the risk. Mm -hmm. And so to me, uh, being able to explain something, even if it ends up being not what you want it to be, let's say, or it isn't the most exotic of, uh, of answers, uh, basically lets people get on with their lives and do things properly. Now, I, I, I don't know what the pilots have, have seen, but obviously they're concerned about it. Um, and I think the, you know, creating, uh, as has been done now, uh, this group of individuals to talk about it, again, the circle widens. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that we've been doing within the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and even deeper, the integration, the UAP Integration Outreach Committee, the IOC, um, we're, we're working on a number of policy recommendations uh, procedure recommendations, reporting recommendations um, for NASA for their, um, I think it's newly named the uh, Independent Study Team, so the UAP IST, mm -hmm. I think is what they're called now. Um, so we're looking to provide those recommendations for them. And one of the things that you've talked about is not drawing conclusions, but actually trusting the data. So are we asking our pilots to submit data that we don't even trust. I mean, what would be done with that data? What could we do with it? Is anyone even going to be interested in looking at it? Oh, I'm sure people will be interested in looking at it. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's, uh, there's more than enough individuals out there uh, that can process the kinds of data that would be produced, as long as the data is produced in a verifiable way that, you know, is, let's say, publicly available. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, you're, you're looking for trends, you're looking for, you know, uh, um, principal component axes for what might be involved. But I mean, look at the company Enigma, right? That's been set up uh, on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. uh, they're doing, at least in part, this. They're collecting the data and putting it into standardized data tables. And then they're doing, an anal they're doing analyses and some of that data they're gonna be letting out mm -hmm. once it's vetted. Because, you know, and this is something that Jacques Vallée often spent a lot of time and he always hammers into me, is that he says he gets a lot of data. He has lots of data. I mean, he has, I remember sitting in his office once and he had uh, two monitors lined up next to each other. It was basically a big Excel spreadsheet. And he had hundreds of rows, each of them an event, 
he had a couple of hundred columns of things that he was peopling the or wow. you know, the the data with different parameters from different parameters and then vetting them and just throwing out the stuff that doesn't have sufficient information right because you're you're he calls it scrubbing the data uh, because in in science you want to compare like with like or if you have something that is part of a comparator where you're like I want to say I want to compare this to this you want enough of this and you want enough of those so that you can basically say, well, this is a repeating pattern, and these are the differences that are observable. Um, so you know, he's been doing that, and he has a, a fantastic data set, um, but others are now doing it as well. I mean, uh, I mean, others are setting up, and they have collected this kind of data. And so I think that that's exciting because that data will go out into scientific publications. I would, you know, one of the things I think that the AIAA can do with this, I mean, there's plenty of people who know math there, is do these kinds of analyses, publish it in an aeronautics journal, and run with it, mm -hmm. right? And then, again, the, the, the further away you stay from a conclusion, the longer you will keep the attention of the audience. Mm -hmm. And that's really important because, you know, all it takes if you, and again, this is something that Jacques taught me, and I should have known this being a scientist for as many supposedly years as I was. You know, he said, look, Gary, if, if you make a conclusion ab about what you think this is, and I can prove you wrong, you've, you're, at the very least, your, rep your, your reputation is tarnished, especially if you come out with a big claim. Mm -hmm. And he did that on the very first day that I met him. I had an idea about what it is, uh, and I, you know, I thought oh, I'm so smart, and I said it, and he just like went, and I realized, okay, I need to stick around this guy. He can teach me stuff, right? And so that I think is the kind of positive attitude that we need to take uh, with the the data, is let's stay away from a firm conclusion. Uh, and even if we need to go well past the point where we know what the conclusion should be, because if you, again, if you, if you start talking about the, the next step and that should be had at some point and not in this discussion today, the next step is, okay, well, let's say, let's speculate that there is something here. I mean, there's a huge set of conversations you could have about what is the intent of what it is that's here. And I don't want to even get into it because you can go down a, a thousand different rabbit holes and just go, if anybody wants to know what the intent is, go look at Reddit. Uh, there's lots of ideas there. Um, but so, but that question is right behind the conclusion mm -hmm. that will be at some point made. If it's not made, or let's put it dif differently. So, Again, one of my mentors uh, when I was a grad student, uh, Lee, Lee Herzenberg, Len and Lee Herzenberg, they uh, made, they actually uh, created the uh, monoclonal antibody technology uh, for hu humanized antibodies, billions of dollars um, brought in, you know, and to Stanford got extraordinary amounts. And so I was talking with Lee, the wife, one day, and she said, I said, I wanted to do this. She says, Gary, no, that's not the way to do this. You're asking a question whose answer is, Yes or no? That's the Las Vegas question. If the answer is yes, you're happy. If the answer is no, you wasted whatever amount of time or resources went into that. Sometimes you just want to flip the, answer, the question around in a way and ask the Zen question where the answer is interesting no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so luckily we're actually at the point of the Zen question. 
are we alone? Is this evidence of extraterrestrial activity or something mm -hmm. that's maybe already been here or was here forever and before us, which opens the question of do we really own this planet? Um, so is it something? Yes, that's a game changer at many levels that, you know, of society. The other answer is just as interesting. It might be depressing. The other answer is we are alone, at least here, and nothing have, has been here. That's interesting, but it still begs the question, what is it that everybody's seeing? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Right? So you still have to explain it. So no matter what the answer is here, the answer is interesting. So you know, one of the things that I try to teach my students in my lab is to always ask the Zen question, because when every time you do an experiment, it's another, it's another figure in the paper. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you never go down a blind alley. And so, and, and that's the other reason why, you know, I mean, not, not all questions can be that way, but the other reason why, for instance, I always got involved with instrumentation and the creation of new instruments that I see as inevitable, because instruments are just technical capabilities. You can always make it happen. It just depends on how hard you hammer at it. <laughs> but if you ask the question, you know, will this drug cure cancer? And then you might make a mistake, and many pharmaceutical companies make that mistake literally every year, and they have because it's the only way to do it right now. Mm. So, um, I so I think that we're at that kind of inflection point in our thinking about this. We have the tools, as we were talking about earlier, to answer some of these questions, or the building of some of the tools that are required to be used are within our grasp. Sometimes it's not even building the tools. Sometimes it's just actually putting together the pieces that already exist and are being used for other things. Yeah. And so we have all of that. So as long as we're not hurting anybody and as long as we're not diverting resources, the argument of diversion of resources is frankly a, a, uh, a, uh, a, you know, a white elephant, or I don't know what the right term is, but it's, it's a diversion. Yeah. Um, and so we have it. And if people are willing to do it and the answers are interesting no matter what, then why don't we do it? And frankly, the, the, the yes answer to it is actually a Las Vegas outcome. Yeah. You know, and so I, I, you know, I'm interested in doing it. Now, I, interestingly, I got asked the question the other day, um, do I think that disclosure or sufficient knowledge to make a conclusion will come in my lifetime? Mm -hmm. My answer was, I don't care. My answer was we need to create the foundation and the bedrock for the other so the answer will come. Even if we know that there is something else here, it clearly hasn't shown up and landed on the White House lawn. And it had plenty, it's had plenty of opportunity to do so. And to the extent that anything of what it is that we observe is real is them just saying, well, we're here. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's probably not going to change just because Congress says, you know, they're here. Mm -hmm. They're not going to suddenly go, voila, and show up at family dinner. Or, you know, We're going to still have a lot of unanswered questions. We're going right. to have to stand up, you know, the capability to understand this societally yeah. uh, across different spectrums. And once we do that, you know, I think we'll probably move a little bit away from the technology conversation, perhaps, mm -hmm. and be able to start integrating it into what I'll loosely call the humanities. Mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, there's... You know, how are we going to represent ourselves? How are we going to interact? How are we even going to, how is that going to change how we interact with each other and mm -hmm. how we, you know, right. think about our place in the universe? I mean, these are all questions that are rhetorical to me, but we need to actually start thinking about. I mean, right. 
they've been somewhat religious questions for some period of time, but the rubber's starting to heat to hit the road mm-hmm. in some sense. Do you feel that way? Well, I mean, I, I yes, I think the rubber's hitting the road. I mean, it's it's a, it's a matter of you know, I think a change in consciousness or a change in observing what it is that's around us. When you observed what was around you, did you feel any type of change in your? Or at least how you interacted with the world. You mean when I observed the things in my bedroom or over my head? I mean, it was always there in the back of my mind, and maybe it was the reason why I was interested in science fiction. Mm. And I, and I, when I would look at the sky, I almost kind of always, knew, I said, "Well, I know they're there," but I didn't explicitly set out to study it because I was so busy on my personal path of, you know doing my science, getting assistant professorship, getting grants. Yeah, you know, why, why is that, right? I mean, that's what everyone does. But yeah. you, I mean, no kidding, had a very personal experience. And even the experiences I had, it really took a while for me to actually move forward and try to do something about it in some mm-hmm. sense. Do you think that's a, a normal reaction to this? Or do you think that's something that is in our culture that, you know, steers us away from that? Well, I think, I mean, for instance, if... Why is not everybody interested in what I think is one of the most interesting things ever? And you have this conversation with me because it doesn't put the bread on their table. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change their lives. And if it does, and frankly, I think that with what would happen, there was some sort of disclosure of something. People would be, you know, it'd be in the news for a, a few months, and then we go back to the business of bashing each other over the heads with whatever's closest. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's going to it's going to create a kumbaya moment. Um, Personally, you know, somebody else can say otherwise, uh, but it will change the discussion about, well, why are we spending so much money uh, on military hardware, right? If because we're all worried about basically imp- the implosion of the planet, you know, at least ecologically mm-hmm. and otherwise, um, you look at whatever this might be, and you realize it made it past the inflection point. It is proof that you can make it yeah. past that inflection point. And so that might change thinking a little bit. I mean, I'm not going to get even into what the religious implications are. You know, probably the first thing that some religions will say is, well, who is their God? Do they have the same God? Interestingly, the Catholic Church has actually already come out and said, we're perfectly fine with uh, aliens. And maybe they have their own, and actually the, the, um, some of the Vatican uh, intellectuals have said, well, maybe they have their own personal Jesus. Isn't that a song? <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, I mean, yeah, it, that's interesting. Yeah. Right. So for instance, with the Vatican, they're all, they've already publicly said, we're perfectly fine. If there are aliens, it doesn't mean that they don't have souls. So, you know, one of the major religions on the planet has been, you know, very forward about this. One of the other major religions, um, in the Muslims, in the Quran, the Quran explicitly talks about the jinn mm. and these uh, things that are between the angels and humans that actually live with us. I mean, they explicitly, and it's interesting. So, for people out there who have friends of Muslim faith, ask them about the jinn. Mm. And even scientists, friends of mine, uh, I talk about, said, "Oh yeah, we all believe in the jinn." Oh really? Yeah. No, I mean it's it's fascinating. You know, and then you know you don't have to go far over into Buddhism and all the rest. They already explicitly believe in this kind of stuff, and the and um, uh, many of the Indian religions are perfectly fine with all of these 
things that are, are might or might not be here. So, you know, as, as but look at it from the point of view of, let's say, a, a relatively primitive human tribe or whatever, seeing these things. Of course, they're going to ascribe supernatural abilities to them. Um, and so maybe, again, the things that we have peopled our religions with uh, in the form of spirits or gods or what have you are really just these things showing themselves as they appear to be now. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's actually, there's an interesting woman, I think you probably know her, Diana Pasolka. And, uh, you know, her book, American Cosmic, explicitly goes into this about how her, let's say, conversion into being interested in this was her looking at the, um, what she called the ecstasies of the saints. So she was studying the ecstasies of the saints, meaning the times in which they became enraptured by some sighting or observation that they had where they would be literally in a, almost like a trance. Mm. And as she w- and she literally, she had access to the Vatican Library, which not many people get access to go down into the, into the catacombs of the Very library. Cool. And she said, one of the things that really interested me was that these, these the, the showings of the angels or the showings of God always showed up as orbs of light or mm. things like that. And she began to realize, well, this is, today we see this as, uh, we see these as, we, we call them UFOs. Um, and it was something, of course, that Jacques Vallée had noted as well, so that she became aware of Jacques Vallée's work, et cetera. But I think what's nice about what Diana does is she writes about it from a, uh, a very academic, non-judgmental view of, look, here's the data. Hmm. Um, now, religions have made conclusions about the data and have become set in their ways, and that is frankly what sets up this potential conflict amongst the religions because they've all come to a conclusion and they're trying to prove the other one wrong. Yeah. And that's, you know, something we want to avoid with the UAP topic right now, right. obviously. Yeah. Right. Let me, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. I wanted to ask you um, if you had any thoughts you'd like to share about the efforts that NASA has undertaken with their UAP uh, investigation, I believe it is, study team. Yeah. UAP IST. So, um, you know, I've, I've been blowing hot and cold about it. Uh, first, you know, excited because they actually have a team, mm-hmm. right? And they've explicitly said that this is something they should be interested in. And probably Bill Nelson has been more open about the, uh, the idea, but he's been supported by uh, CIA and intelligence heads from prior years saying, oh, there's something here and, and this, we can't ignore it. Um, then I was depressed uh, that the amount of money that went into it was only $100,000. Um, but then I got excited again because somebody said, well, no, this is just, this is not to come to a conclusion. This is just to ask whether there's a there there. Mm-hmm. Then I got depressed when some of the people on the team came out even before they had joined the, you know, the thing had been instantiated and publicly said, well, it's not UAPs, it's not aliens. So I'm just going to go on this, and they are. And so I, I was wondering, okay, well, why are they saying that? What are are they psychologically protecting themselves against the attack that they will get from their colleagues, because they even considered being on a committee like this? So they're basically armoring themselves against what they know to be the attacks that are coming. Mm-hmm. And I've publicly said these people, frankly, unless they recant that view of things, should be just taken off the the committee. 
I mean, I, I wouldn't want a reviewer who's before they've seen my paper to you know, be a person that says, well, I don't even believe what he's, what he's doing. Why do you think a, a scientist, I mean, and they know better, right? Because they're not scientists. You don't think, no? No, I mean, they're breaking the rules. I mean, they're breaking the principle that got them their PhD. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, I'm sorry if I'm hurting somebody's feelings, but you know, that's the way it is. And you know, that's what has propelled me. You kind of were asking this before, what got you going? It's when somebody told me I was wrong when I know I'm right. Yeah. Wow. I know the feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about DOD's effort within the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office? Have you had any insight into the efforts that are going on? I there? mean, I I mean, frankly, it's a bit of a cipher right now. I mean, you know, I'm I'm hopeful uh, that uh, uh, Sean uh, Kirkpatrick will be. Uh, an honest broker in all of this. Uh, I just don't know enough about him. And I, of the people who I've spoken with who do know about him, they also are a little bit ambivalent uh, as to what his role is or going to be. And is he going to color the outcomes in any interesting way or an uninteresting way or a biased way? I don't know. We'll see. Um, you know, one of the things that I know about... Um, let's say academic administration or decisions that are made in corporations is it's always better to prevent the decision from being made than try to reverse the decision. Mm. So um, frankly, one of the things that I think the public at large should be doing is, is uh, gaming the refs. You know, we need to basically be out there ahead of time saying we're watching you uh, and we're ready for what's coming. It kind of circles back a little bit to the discussion we were having about about Barnes and the other uh, the you know the Wall, uh, the Wall Street Journal article. You know, I mean, I on Twitter I basically slammed the um, Julian Barnes for what he had written uh, as being clearly biased, and uh, and then I also. I can't remember the second He's one. He's the only came person out. in the world that seems to know what's in that report. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, and yet, yeah, he's wrong. But, um, and then somebody else, uh, and then I was attacked by other people from military.com saying, how dare you do this? I said, I'm not, I, this is Twitter. <laughs> how dare I do anything? I mean, I'm just telling. Military.com is, is like a private organization. It's a private organization. I know. It's known by the military. A lot of people don't realize that. I know. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think that, Again, I, I guess I've gathered enough of a reputation that when I said something like that, it brought in a slew of other people. He never answered, and I don't think he ever will, because if I were him, I'd be embarrassed. It was, that's what you have to do. You have to shame these people, I'm sorry to say, because they've been using shame against people who had honest experiences and telling them that it didn't happen. I mean, the psychological burden on people like that is tremendous, that you know that you saw something and you didn't. And they tell you that you didn't. Um, and so, I mean, there's a whole problem, set of problems there that need to be dealt with. You know, we need support groups and be run by, not by just uh, your average therapist. You need somebody with psychological and psychiatry training to run these things. And luckily, those things are now being set up mm-hmm. uh, to, to help people process it. You know, either they saw something anomalous or they have a mental health problem. So we shouldn't ignore them. Mm-hmm. But these people are otherwise sane uh, by all measures. So we have to have a way of dealing with it. And we can't just keep telling people that they're wrong. Um, and so that, 
That to me is what bothers me about the, let's say the military stance on this, is that if there's something so dangerous there that we shouldn't know about it, then maybe you sh maybe the danger is not that we don't know about it. The danger is that you're actually telling people that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. What's more damaging to society? Telling people that they've seen something, otherwise productive members of society, and making them you know, uh, unsure about it, or hiding some grand secret. So the open question is, if there is a secret, is it because the people who have the secret are using it? or because there truly is a reason we don't want anybody to know about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I, would, I would be just as fine if somebody came out and said, they're here, the truth of it is so bad, we just can't talk about it. Mm -hmm. Of that course, would... they're not gonna do that because then of course that'll open lots of other <laughs> things. But, but I mean, I, that to me would be like, okay, I kind of trust you. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a good first step. It's a good first step. <sighs> How old are you, Gary? 62. 62. Um, you're in a same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, you know, your experiences as a young adult, as someone part of that community, being told that you were constantly wrong kind of helped shape? Absolutely. On this topic, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, yes, is the short answer. I've often looked back and said to myself, uh, or, I mean, so for instance, there was a, a time when I was in, uh, I was assistant professor at Stanford, and I wanted to uh, bring my then boyfriend, partner, to a faculty retreat. Mm -hmm. The chairman of the department called me in and said, well, you can't do that. Some of the other faculty are, um, are bothered by it and, and shouldn't do that. And my, my honest response to him was, what century are you from? Um, and I just said that that's not going to happen. I immediately wrote a letter to the deans Good. and one year later, the man was, he took early retirement. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's just like, I don't know, maybe it's just, but I've always used that kind of determination when I know that I'm right and I'm not hurting anybody. Mm -hmm. And so that same energy kind of propels me here. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, look, I, I don't know what it is, but I know there's something, or it needs to be explained. I mean, John Mack went through this yeah. as well. You know, I know it's something. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I don't need you to shame me mm -hmm. into doing something. And that's what this guy was trying to do. He was trying to shame me. I'm like, I, I just, I just couldn't get it. It was hey, 19, something wrong with you. For this was 1994, down. Stanford. I mean, what's going on? Um, and actually, they tried. Some of them tried to use it against me in my tenure, uh, and so uh, they were threatened with a lawsuit, and I won. Very good. Well, thanks for standing up for yeah. me. But I mean, I think that that's, you know, that's the kind of energy that other people need to use. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's you realize that again. I don't mean to get a big psychology thing. That shame is used by society to control you. It's a control function. Um, and it's a great way, the church uses it, religions use it, you should be ashamed to do that. It's one of the first things you hear when you're growing up, you should be ashamed to do that. It's useful in certain circumstances, mm -hmm. but when it becomes a societal control pr uh, problem, then that's when I think people need to either get together and say, no, I'm not gonna listen to this anymore. And then reverse the shame. 
you should be ashamed of trying to do this. Not, you not know? being a better scientist. Being but being a better scientist. scientist. And you should be ashamed for not following the rules that you signed up for when you got your PhD. Yeah. Um, and so uh, my first argument with a, a major scientist was exactly that. And he backed down. Hmm. I don't think he agreed with me, but he, he real. That's what I always liked about, frankly, science versus history. Uh, I'm not saying anything wrong with history or whatever. <laughs> the social sciences is, I, I noticed in college that the people who did well in those areas were the ones whose opinions were strangely in sync with the professors. Hmm. Um, whereas if I disagreed in science with something, I go to the blackboard and prove it. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I want this discussion to be. I want the discussion to be provable on the blackboard uh, so I can go, done, that's it. Uh, and so it, it, I'm not there yet. I don't have that, but I know it's within reach. Awesome. What about just for the regular person that wants to be involved with this? You know, we talked about how they could potentially, you know, communicate with their representatives that this is something they support. But how, how do you see just the regular person being part of this conversation? Well, first, if they could be, if they could be, well, I, you know, I think there needs to be a little bit of self-organization, but at, at one level, you, you can't expect everything to be grassroots. I mean, grassroots has been done through MUFON and others, and they're, that's great, um, but they don't necessarily adhere to some of the scientific principles, and don't get me mad at me, people at MUFON, but you know, there's, there are other kinds of criteria. Um, so one of the things, again, the creation of some sort of organization that I'm, I'm trying to do, uh, that then explicitly funds this within the academic realm. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, I want to set up sleeper cells <laughs> inside of academics mm -hmm. that, you know, people, I mean, universities will accept money. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sorry. That's yeah. just, you know, it's, 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 it's what drives, you know, a lot of, so if somebody showed up with $10 million, uh, and said, I want to, or, or a larger amount, and said, I want to set up a department of this, or I want to set up a program for this, and I'll give you $100 million. Oh, you bet that there'll be any of a number of places that would step forward. Mm. Do you hear that? Who wants to fund the first UAP Research Center, major institution? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and then that's what energizes people. Yeah. I mean, the state of New Jersey, surprisingly, out of the blue, last summer, I think it was, came out and said, we have a, a research fellowship that we're going to give for UAP studies. Amazing. And that's where I think a lot of the, the, the progress will be made in the areas with the younger generation. Um, I've been with the, the American Institute of Aeronautics, uh, Aeronautics and Astronautics, the AIAA. Um, one of our um, subcommittee leads is a professor uh, at the University of Illinois. And the interest, not only from the students, but the other faculty, now that he's been engaging on this topic um, uh, vocally, I'll say, mm -hmm. um, they're all signing up. You know, I mean, I keep seeing Illinois email addresses coming into our recruitment mm -hmm. uh, catcher there. So it's, I think it really is just about getting that seat in and letting people know that it's okay to actually right. do this. play around with UAP. Tomorrow night, I'm doing a Zoom class for somebody in anthropology. Uh, in the Midwest and uh, for their students. You know, I'll just spend an hour or two talking through the students to all of these ideas. And they've actually, they've actually been studying the gimbal event, the other events, uh, the 
professor there has, and now they want somebody to come in and answer some of the questions. That's very cool. So, you know, I mean, uh, when we set up this organization that I want to set up, I'm going to have a conference at Stanford. And I'll invite the necessary people. And to the extent that I'm allowed, Stanford's very careful with its name. Um, the, the thing will be done at Stanford. It won't necessarily, Stanford never approves a conference held on its grounds necessarily. Um, but I will do it and I will bring them to the, to a place where it, at least it will add a little bit more legitimacy mm. to the matter. When can we see that? I'm, we're actually, we're trying to get it set up for this summer. We'll see. This summer? We'll awesome. see. Very cool. But the important part is you can bet that that audience hall will be full to capacity. Yeah. I'm going to have it in the engineering quad. Uh, I'm going to bring in engineers. I'm going to, it won't be, it won't be like a bunch of people at a, you know, UFO conference in. Uh, inside out. In, what's that? That's why I call it inside out. Inside the industry, yeah. you know, it's one thing to take a people that have a very strong opinion on UAP and bring them into a agnostic community to convince them of one thing. And it's a little different to convince someone that is inside there, inside right. the mainstream academic area and say, hey, just look at the data, you know, yep. one, and then let them do that, that communication. Yeah, I think really what you're saying there is you don't want to proselytize. Mm -hmm. You want to come in with uh, uh, basically a, a discussion and talk about things that are sufficiently interested that interesting that anybody could have a discussion about. I mean, you almost want it to be sort of a kitchen table kind of discussion, but you know, we want to bring in for such uh, a conference, uh, philosophers, a few couple of religion people, but I, I, I want it to personally, I want it to be more tech heavy mm -hmm. um, because I want people to see the opportunities. I mean, there's, you're not gonna have one conference like this, you can have multiple ones, but having them at a on a university campus will be fantastic. Uh, Avi Loeb ran such a thing at Harvard. Yeah, you know, really, probably the first of its kind. Um, so this is just the next step, uh, and so you know, I think it is again the giving and creating a permission structure, uh, where, and so the, I think the idea is that you know, uh, just like the AIA organization that you're setting up, other outside organizations can be the catalyst for creating many more. You mm -hmm. know, the von Neumann probe <laughs> approach. Uh, to enabling other people to, to get involved. Because it won't even, I mean, by doing that, it won't even necessarily be me, as I said before, that ends up with the glory. Uh, it, always what you find in science, you know, the people who win the Nobel Prizes aren't all at Harvard, Stanford, and MIT. They're at these places where you wouldn't expect it, but they followed their nose with a level of determination mm -hmm. that they're like, ah, and then the rest of the community realizes and then then they get hired at Stanford and Harvard um, you know but they 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 proved it elsewhere but it's 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 planting those seeds and doing the basic research is what creates the discoveries that then somebody realizes can be enabled and translated very cool switching it up a little bit here would you consider machine learning or the direction it's going as a potential non-human intelligence? I mean, well, I mean, we're talking about the stuff that's going on at Google AI and all the others. And just where it's going as well. Absolutely, I mean. oh yeah. No, I mean, I mean, 
the, the I mean, just as an, as the example, that Google AI bot uh, that the engineer came out and said was sentient. I'm not sure it was sentient, but uh, you know, I would rather have a conversation with it than probably many of the people that I do know because it can talk about anything. Mm -hmm. So, and that's just the beginning. Would that speak then to another category yes. of intelligence, and thus there being a broader spectrum of intelligence, you know, out there that you know, because right now we're our only data point. Essentially, mm -hmm. we understand intelligence as this, and then you know, perhaps to a lesser extent in other animals. But um, if if we have then created something that we would classify as an intelligence that isn't us, although it might utilize or leverage our intelligence in some manner, mm -hmm. we have to assume there's a wider class of intelligence out there. Right. Would that be fair? Absolutely. You know, I mean, and even if you step away from all of these notions of faster than light travel and wormholes, et cetera, um, it will not be us or our immediate uh, children or descendants that will be the first that we send to Alpha Centauri, even by conventional means, even by a light sail, right? Or even by a ram, ram scoop, mm -hmm. right? Approaches to, to going at least some significant degree of the speed of light. Um, it'll be an advanced computer. And what better advanced computer to send than an AI. Mm -hmm. And you'd probably end up sending, you know, the chatbot GPT thing that everybody sees in the news today or some much more advanced version of it. Um, and maybe that's what we're seeing today here. Mm -hmm. That's already pre-programmed by somebody else that when you get there, uh, you know, you'll just kind of observe and watch and send the data back. Mm -hmm. So I'm, yes, I'm convinced that, you know, for instance, the Copernicus group that, uh, I'm a part of, you can bet that one of the first things that we're going to put, if we can, on, and this is just my personal opinion, again, I don't speak for Copernicus, I got to be careful, um, you know, if we can, we'd put a, a pretty advanced computer on there. And if it ends up being some version of the, of the chatbot GPT, uh, better than, you know, an iPhone. Um, would you consider yourself in some sense, maybe like a, a protege of Jacques? Or oh, maybe yeah. round two? Oh, yeah. I mean, no, I, well, I can't remember the name of the person that he considers himself a protege of, uh, but there was an uh, Andre, and I forget his last name, I'm sorry, Jacques, um, that he considers himself having been taught by this individual. I 100% consider him a mentor. I mean, I've had, you know, four or five mentors in my life, uh, and all in, in academics. Mm -hmm. um, this guy, Ali Zaleh, when I was at Cornell, Lennon Lee Herzenberg, uh, David Baltimore, Nobel Prize winner at MIT when I worked with him. And then a few around Stanford, uh, but not to the level of Jacques, because they've always been smarter than me, or at least knew more than me. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so I think that that's, that's part of what I'm hoping to do for the people in the general community is, you know, for better or worse, I'm a confident person. People have always said, Gary, you just seem so confident. Actually, I'm, I'm trembling inside most of the time. But I think having that confidence lets you do things and it opens doors that you didn't know were there. Mm -hmm. So if you are telling a good proportion of your population that the stuff you're experiencing is wrong, you're making them insecure. And so they're not going to go forward, right? Yeah. They won't open doors or try to even batter down the doors. So... Um, you know, but I think having confidence is twofold. It means also you have to be confident enough in your, in your intellect to know what you don't know and to appreciate somebody else who knows more. 
I mean, there's a there's a woman genomicist. I won't name her name, but she's very very famous. Uh, and people say, "Oh yeah, you're in the no." She's so much smarter than me. I love being around her, and but we still bounce ideas off each other. And so I think being secure about who and what you are, and I'm secure that I'm gay, um, is like, okay, now I can do stuff. I mean, I still go back to that earlier point. I remember the point in time when I realized I was, I sat on the edge of my bed and said, oh, you're gay. <laughs> and that was it. There was no like, ah, yeah. you know? And so it, maybe it just takes that, whatever combination of characteristics that I got from my parents and circumstance, et cetera, um, you know, not everybody can replicate that, but I can help, or we, I think, not just I, we can help create a level of security and, as we said, a permission structure for people so that they, they can be sure of themselves and then go forward with asking their own questions. I mean, to me, that's so important. I, I, one of the things I always realized about the work that I do with teaching my graduate students, I don't teach classes, teach graduate students how to think, is I hate wasted opportunity. Mm. And that really bothers me when that happens. And so I look at this whole UAP thing as potentially a wasted opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so it just, it just drives me nuts that we're not doing something about it. But, well, frankly, we are. And so the best thing you do when you see something that upsets you is you go out and do something about it. And I, for better or worse, I have the ability to do so. And I'm, so I'm going to do it. Me too. <laughs> uh, someone has to do it. Mm -hmm. um, this is what I wanted to do. I say, like, just we can look at a character. Like, it's okay to be interested in UFOs or UAP. You have our permission. <laughs> you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, it's just honestly, like, maybe we can just do that to end or something. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Because um, it is, it is silly. You know, and just be mm -hmm. like, hey, it's okay. I'm interested in UAP. Not a big deal. <laughs> People believe in all kinds of things, and so why not? I mean, they could be doing something you know, uh, illicit with their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and so why not, why not this, you know, even if it's just a hobby, yeah. right? I mean, uh, you know, ho hobbies are things that you do that you enjoy. And if you enjoy asking the question, are there non-human intelligences here? Then that's interesting. I mean, frankly, even without talking about ETs and all the other thing, there are non-human intelligences. I mean, have you ever watched some of the, you know, some of the animal uh, interactions and the things that they do? Mm -hmm. I mean, I look at my dogs and I see a consciousness in front of me. Mm. They're not at our level, but you see some other things where animals solve problems that are almost miraculous and you know that they're on the edge yeah. of ability. There's just this recent um, uh, archaeologic find, uh, Homo nobelis, or I can't remember, I can't remember, but it was recent in South Africa uh, of something that lived something like 200,000 years before us. And there's evidence, not yet conclusive, but the evidence is that it was using fire. Oh, wow. So another genus of humans. Another genus of humans, 200,000 years. I mean, we've only been around for about maybe 50. 50,000, So yeah. somebody else was here, maybe. <sighs> maybe. And, you know, uh, I mean, that tells you something. That tells you, that tells you actually something quite interesting, that intelligence can arise multiple times. Hmm. Right, it tells you that the opportunity now why they might have died out an open question maybe because we came along and killed them off who knows um, when you know that something can happen you know the, there's a thing called Bayesian inference you probably know that the, the, the idea of prior if it can happen once that means it can happen mm -hmm. 
And so therefore it can happen again. And, you know, you, I think we haven't really integrated that into our understanding of our, pro, our the chances of us being here, you know, right. in a Fermi essentially and all that. Right. Yeah. We haven't really integrated that. I mean, I remember um, when I was probably, I was young, it was the first house that we lived in. Um, and it was a scientific American. And for whatever reason, I opened the page and it was about, about the local universe. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, they had a, a picture of the, of the cosmos as we understood them at the moment. Um, and I think it was just basically a, a, an edge on view of the, of the Milky Way galaxy. And I think I was, I don't know how, eight or nine. Um, I remember looking at it and thinking, what kinds of, I don't know why I thought this, but what kinds of empires and stories have happened across time, across all of that space? I mean, so I was already imagining things that might live out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if even that sense of wonder and possibility of the, how small we are relative to all of that can be imbued into students or others out mm-hmm. there, that sense of wonder will drive them to help answer the question that we're trying to answer here today. Yeah. Is it what kind of data do you need to collect to prove or disprove the hypothesis? So long as they look at the data. As long as they look at the data. <laughs> Speaking of looking at data, uh, I've been speaking with some pilots recently who have commercial pilots in, you know, what you would expect to fly across the country in. Mm-hmm. that have been seeing objects just recently, just, you know, as we speak over the past eight to 12 months over the continental United States and, and the Western coast. Have you been tracking that? And what are your thoughts? I mean, I've seen the stories of they see these lights circling and I've seen some of the video uh, that the pilots have taken on their uh, basically uh, cell phone cameras. Mm-hmm. Uh and I mean, the long and the short of it is they don't know what they are. And these are people who basically fly every day for their whole lot, you know, for their yeah. professional lives. And they see something that shouldn't be there. So I'll ask a different, I'll actually make a different point. Maybe they always have been there, but the pilots just didn't notice them because they didn't have, let's say, the, the, environment to say, I should be paying attention to that, mm-hmm. yep. right? Or as we all know, maybe they just suppressed it, right? There's this, there's this notion of uh, intelligence is sometimes not about putting one and one together. Intelligence is just realizing that there is a one, hmm. right? That you, that you see something that other people don't see. Yeah, I mean, that, that is, th- those are the innovators. Those are the people who see something that's there. And so, maybe there's just a certain kind of brain circuitry mm. that uh, by itself recognizes the anomalous as being something you should be paying attention to. You know, I always use the example. Not that you couldn't physically see it. It's just your internal brain's filters saying that's noise. That's noise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, there's a, a book about, you know, reality and irreality that, our brains are frankly not designed to see reality. Our brains are only there to filter enough information to keep us surviving and pass our genes on. Mm-hmm. So everything that is extraneous to that essential need just doesn't get into our brains. Do you th- I've heard you use the term like biosphere or dark biosphere. Is that kind of the same theory where there's there's potential things happening that includes life in some sense that could be happening around us. We're just not tuned into. We're just not tuned into in it. Sense. Or you know, I mean, I hate to use the term frequency because it it has so many negative, unfortunately, connotations. Um, 
it's, uh, you know, it's, it's data off the curve. I mean, just to go straight to the, to the science of it. Um, so in my lab meetings, the students will show their data and then they'll, there'll be like a curve and everything fits the curve. Oh, isn't that beautiful? It's great. And then there's like a data point off the curve. And I said, what happened to that one? And when they'll go a few, and then back in my mind, it's, it's thinking, what, wait a what, what did that mean? I said, go back a few slides. I think my students are tired of me when they, because they know that when I say go back a few slides, it's the beginning <laughs> of trouble. Oh boy, yeah. Um, but good trouble, because it's always the anomaly that is, anomalies by definition are discovery. Mm-hmm. And so here we have anomalies that, you know, enough people are crying fire that we should maybe be paying attention to it. Because if we're going to just stay on the curve for the rest of time, then, and the anomalies just build up. But this is is what's called the Cunian revolution, right? The structure of scientific revolutions. Thomas Kuhn uh, wrote this back in, I think, the 50s or so. Um, where science doesn't proceed in this incremental set of understandings. Science proceeds until it reaches, a, a, until it reaches a wall, and, and a wall of anomalies begin to build up because the current understanding doesn't accept that the anomaly exists. Uh, and then there's somebody on this side screaming, but it exists, it exists. Mm. And then the evidence begins to build up, and then you have a revolution. But the, the almost annoying aspect of it is that everybody who was screaming it doesn't exist on the other side tells you, oh, of course it did. We always understood this, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, that's fine. But I think that that's we're, we're at that moment now, uh, again, where people are, are beginning to realize, okay, there's, there's something. But again, it's, it's I want to create a science and, and language structure for people where they can talk about the anomaly in a way that doesn't create ridicule. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, maybe this organization that I'm setting up will, will, be, will be able to do it. The things that you're doing, uh, things that we know other people are doing, there's like a, uh, there's basically a, uh, a cottage industry of groups being created by many, uh, and one or more of them is gonna be extremely successful. Mm-hmm. See? Which is exciting. It's okay to be interested in UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Gary, thanks for joining me today. This Thank was incredible. Thank you so much. It was a fun discussion. It was awesome. More to come. Cheers. Cheers.